In sports, it's often said that the best laid plans break down at the first pitch, or the opening kick, or the tip-off, or the face-off. Pick whatever sport you want. And the same thing, that the best laid plans break down is also applied to other parts of life. The vacation trip that you planned, the family gathering that you arranged, the meeting that you led. Things proceed differently than you had planned or envisioned. Planning and ideals are wonderful. They orient us how to proceed. They give us a direction to follow. But things in life get messy from the very beginning, don't they? We have to live in the world that is, as well as pursue the world that should be. Things in life just don't go as planned. They don't go as we anticipate. They don't go as we seek to prevent. So the question in life is, what do we do when things go awry? What happens when relationships break down? What's the plan when marriage falters? If you've been here at Grace in the last uh, almost two months, you know that we've been journeying through the key scriptures in our sermon series, Heaven Help the Home. We've looked at God's design and the fall into sin and the effective sin on marriage and on the man and the woman from Genesis 1 to 3. We've seen how marriage is meant to reflect the gospel, Ephesians chapter 5, and how that's displayed through complementary roles of husband and wife. We've highlighted God's unique plan, 1 Corinthians 7, for those who are single and the place of sexuality for married couples, same chapter. The month of February included a whole host of hot topics and sensitive ones at that. And if you missed them, I'm sorry. They're available online. Today is our final week in this part of this series with an explicit focus on marriage. We're going to look at parenting and children in the next several weeks. And today we're going to look at what the Bible says when things break down, when there's brokenness in our lives. And life shows that every marriage at one point or another, to some degree or another, experiences the reality of disappointment and of brokenness and of dysfunction and sometimes of rupture. Marriage brings with it almost an inevitable heartache, a sense of letdown, a longing. Russell Moore, in his great book, The Storm-Tossed Family, which we've made reference to several times here, said everybody's marriage is in trouble at some point. Those who know are the ones who can fight to save it. We're going to go further, though, today. We're going to speak in summary form about what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. I'm going to ask you this morning, how many of you personally or through your parents or your children or through the life of another close family member or friend have experienced the pain of divorce? Raise your hand. Look around. See how pervasive the reality of divorce is. So today we're going to look at the biblical teaching. Divorce is an important, but it's not an enjoyable topic and certainly not for a pastor. In that same book, Moore wrote, who wishes to speak to an issue in the hard tones with which the Bible speaks to it that affects virtually every family in the pews? And at one level, the answer is no one. Divorce is messy and painful and lasting. But at another level, every pastor should. Because if we're unwilling, if we're unable to speak 
to a reality that's so central to God's heart, marriage, and, and an experience that's so pervasive in our lives, divorce, then what will the, speak, the church speak to? Now, the people of God need to hear God's heart for marriage and God's view of sin and God's compassion for broken people and God's offer for lasting hope. And so we need to make this journey, even if it's not easy. Our path today in the scriptures is going to look at the design for marriage, divorce and remarriage, care for the wounded and gospel power for us all. You see the outline on the back of your worship program. And before we start, I want to emphasize how much I desire today to speak full of truth and full of grace. Jesus modeled that perfectly. I want the, the truth of God's heart and the grace of God's heart to shine through today. We know from scripture that God's not a God to be trifled with or ignored, but, but God's also not a God to be avoided or to be terrorized by. He is a sovereign God, a powerful God, a good and a personal father. And so when we hear from him in the scriptures, we hear from one who wants our best even more than we want it for ourselves. And it's important that we understand the character and the heart of God in the reality of broken marriage. Many of you have experienced firsthand that reality, uh, personally or through a loved one. And my heart goes out to you this morning. I look around this room, I see some faces of people whose stories I know at that level. You've experienced deep pain, you've experienced lasting wounds and hurt. And because of that, you might be tempted with a topic like this today to be rather defensive or demanding or, or dogmatic, and, and that would be understandable. It may be even justifiable in your mind. I'm going to say from the outset that there's a whole lot that I could say today, maybe should say today, that I won't because of time, because of our context. And so there's a lot that we'll leave out, a lot that we will hardly scratch the surface on. Today's not exhaustive at all, but I'd like to ask you to do me, do you a favor, to set aside the, the yeah buts and the what abouts and but you don't knows of your life and to listen together from God. Let's hear what, what God says in his word. Let's think about what that means for us, whatever our story. Let, let's think about what God wants to say to us as we look at our past, as we face our present, as we enter the future. Remember the kind of God we have. First point in your outline, biblical teaching God's perspective on marriage. God is the designer of marriage. He's the creator He's the one who made the woman through the man, essential complements to one another, equal in value, establishing the family, and, and making a plan for carrying out his commission to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, Genesis 1.26. God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. Marriage is central to the plan of God. If you move over to Genesis 2, we read about God's creation of that female, and about the perfect suitability that the man and the woman, male and female, had for each other. Again, equal in value, complementary in design, whole in function. It's a beautiful picture. It's God's design, not just then, but all the way until today. 
Verse 23 of Genesis 2, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Then we learn in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is intended to be a picture of the gospel, the good news of God for humanity. And in marriage, God is displaying for the world to see what he's done through Jesus Christ. We, We see something about the union of Jesus, the Son of God, with his church, with God's family, you and I if we know him, and how we display love and respect, sacrifice and submission to the praise of God's glory. It's a wonderful portrait. We were there a few weeks ago. And it's something that those who know Jesus can show in increasing measure. My marriage declares the great work of God. Can you say that if you're married? That lays the foundation for marriage, what it means to be man and woman before God with each other. Here's a a, a comprehensive but really well-worded summary of what marriage is according to the Bible. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. Key in on that. Look at that. Marriage is a spiritual and legal covenant between two complementary counterparts through which they are joined by God in a one flesh union and commit to pursue and enjoy a conjugal, exclusive, indivisible, lifelong love relationship. Let's unpack that a little bit. What does that statement say? That marriage, according to God, is one man and one woman. Gender and number are very clear. That marriage is a covenant commitment for a lifetime. It's more than just a contract that at some point we can opt out of. That marriage is complementary. Man and woman are not the same in design. Equal in value, though, and they complete one another. Marriage is a joining together into one flesh by God. Marriage is a divine work, and it intertwines our lives. Finally, marriage is only for each other. It's sexual in design. It's it's a gluing together in the relationship, and it's lifelong. Mary Cassian, one of the better writers of our day, said it's a jaw-dropping, mind-blowing concept that God creates a union so deep and complete that the individual parts are supernaturally eclipsed by the greater whole. In other words, what's going on in marriage is more than just two people saying, I'll be with you. It's a divine work of God to display his grace and his glory to the world. That's why we take the wonder and the permanence of marriage at grace so seriously. It's It's one of the reasons why marital and premarital counseling are so important to us here. Because we want people, we want believers to to understand how God views marriage. We, We want them to know how invested we are as a local church that their marriage reflect God. It's not just the wedding list that that's responsible to that couple. It's the local church. As we help prepare couples for the delight and the challenge of marriage. 
So, so if marriage is this portrait of the gospel, we want to do everything we can before and after the wedding so that that picture of what God is doing is as radiant and as beautiful as possible. We want to encourage couples who are in some kind of dating relationship to consider marriage. Marriage is a gift, and those who know God should be ready to embrace it. And if we wait too long, we do ourselves and many others potential harm. So marriage is God's wonderful design, but we know from the Bible that the fall, that the fall into sin has distorted it. We know from the Bible that God created marriage for harmony and for oneness, but we know from the Bible that sin turns us against each other and turns marriage on its head. We know in our world that breakdowns and brokenness are very, very common, and some of you know that full well, but that isn't normal to God. Divorce isn't the norm in God's eyes. It's the exception. The norm is marriage for life. Marriage came before the fall. Divorce came after. So what does the Bible teach? Second point in your outline, the biblical teaching, God's perspective on divorce and remarriage. We've already seen a little bit what the book of Ephesians has to say there. Let's look at a key passage in the Old Testament. You can just listen along where God speaks to his people about the faithfulness of their marriage vows. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, reads this. You ask why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what is the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be faithful. God speaking to his people about their hearts before him and how they view their commitments. Over in the New Testament, where we'll spend more of our time today, there are two primary passages that, that speak about divorce and remarriage. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some hosts who would be happy to put one in your hand. We're going to be looking a little more extensively at those two passages, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Just raise your hand, and they'll give you one, and you can look there. The, the longest of the ones in the New Testament, especially where Jesus speaks, is found in Matthew chapter 19, and I'd invite you to turn there. There are a few snippets where Jesus also speaks in that way, in Matthew 5 and Mark 10 and Luke 16. But in Matthew 19, Matthew 19, Jesus speaks directly to the Pharisees about a question they had about divorce. Remember the Pharisees, they were the religious guardians of Israel. They were the ones who spoke on behalf of the people. And so they met this Jewish man, Jesus, who was getting a lot of followers, and they wanted to test him. They wanted to trick him to see if he would step on a landmine when it came to the question of marriage and divorce. A little background. The Pharisees had essentially two views about divorce. There were two camps, the Hillel camp and the Shammai camp. That's a freebie. You don't have to remember it. Here's the important thing. The Hillel camp, they were the progressives of Jewish religious culture. They said that divorce could, could happen for all kinds of offenses, including a badly cooked meal. I'm glad that doesn't hold today. I don't think. The other camp, the Shammai camp, they were the conservatives of the Pharisees. And, and, and they said that divorce was limited to gross indecency. 
lewd, immoral behavior that included adultery, but wasn't limited to that. So they came together to find out who was correct, and they asked Jesus about this. And they wanted to make him squirm and say something heretical. They were jealous of him. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Pharisees asked, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, verse 9, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So the Pharisees ask, what's lawful? They, they weren't particularly interested in God's design. They were interested in their freedom. What could they do that God could tolerate? Isn't that the kind of question that we often ask? God, what can I do that you will tolerate? Jesus quotes back from God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he declares that this one flesh union joined together by God should not be separated by human beings. It's a ripping apart. It's a rebellion against what God has made. Marriage is a divine arrangement. Whether people recognize it, whether cultures recognize it, marriage is from God. And God doesn't take kindly to those who tear apart what he's put together. Jesus elevates marriage to a divine pedestal. The Pharisees quote in verse 7 from Deuteronomy 24, Moses had proclaimed some provisions. They, they, they emphasize the command that Moses gave about the how question for those who pursue divorce, but Jesus turns the how question into a heart question. This was permitted, Jesus said, because of hard hearts, not because of God's design. Divorce was a concession from God in a fallen world, not his desire for his creation. Thus, verse 9. Jesus gives an answer that doesn't agree with either of the groups of Pharisees. His, his answer is rather confined, rather narrow, because Jesus seeks a righteousness for his people that is greater than the Pharisees. Unthinkable to them, but possible for him. Jesus is concerned about hearts, including our own. So Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Malachi. He quotes about the sacrosanct nature of marriage. Don Carson, a New Testament scholar in our day, says any view of divorce and remarriage that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done has already overlooked a basic fact. Divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but evidence of our fallen world of sinful, hard hearts. Having said that, Jesus does give here a permissible reason for divorce, a spouse's 
sexual unfaithfulness. That's the word porneia there, sexual immorality in most of your Bibles. Not a command, but a concession, permission. Jesus is saying that divorce and remarriage always involve some kind of evil, but Moses permitted it because of hard hearts, and Jesus does too on the grounds of sexual sin. It doesn't necessitate divorce, but permission is granted in some circumstances. Mark's gospel says that this applies both husband to wife and wife to husband. And the disciples realize that this is very hard teaching. Marriage matters to God. A writer in our day said divorce is unnatural. It's like erasing history. It has ripple effects beyond the couple. The Christian sees it more than a tragedy. It's a violent mutilation, a ripping asunder of a one flesh unity. And I don't think he speaks too strong. And many of you know that. Second passage, 1 Corinthians 7. Turn in your Bibles over to that. We've been there in recent weeks. Paul responds to a particular question about marriage and speaks at one level to divorce. Jesus' answer to the Pharisees was, was authoritative, all-encompassing. Paul's response here is to a specific issue, but Paul's authoritative as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, meaning that Jesus has spoken to this. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Remember from a couple of weeks ago the context of 1 Corinthians 7. Let's review. There were some people who were married, and they thought that their marriage and the sexual union that was a part of it somehow were obstacles to their spiritual maturity and to following Jesus. And Paul said, not on your life. He said, there are various things that are central to marriage, and, and sexual union is one of them. Paul, Paul said, no married person should attempt to live a celibate life in his or her marriage. That will leave you worse off as you seek to follow Jesus. No, Paul says, remain in your marriage, seek to help it thrive so that Jesus looks glorious through it. Paul implies there, if you're both believers, rule out divorce. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. This is new from Paul. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now Paul moves into this more specific issue. What if there's a, a person who's a believer, a follower of Jesus, and the spouse is not, a, a so-called mixed marriage? Can the believing spouse now say, wait a minute, now I'm unequally yoked. My spouse doesn't share my faith. So that's going to be a bad marriage for me, and I should just step out of that marriage. That's the best way to follow Jesus. Paul says clearly, emphatically, no. Stay in that marriage. Why? Keep reading, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, set apart, consecrated. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Here's what Paul's saying. There's great evangelistic value for the marriage and for the family if just one of the spouses is a believer, let alone two. Because that one person's life, the wife or the husband, lived well before the spouse and the children has a powerful effect to point them to the gospel, and God can use that even though it's hard. And some of you know that. Paul says here, don't think primarily in terms of your comfort and your convenience in the marriage. Think in terms of the spiritual opportunity and influence. We need to hear that. Far too often, all of us are tempted to do things that numb our pain rather than fuel gospel opportunity. Keep going, verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, Paul asks, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul's saying here that if the unbeliever in a mixed marriage announces that the marriage is over, moves out, terminates contact, abandons all responsibility, puts in place permanent things that say, I'm done, and it's done, then the believing spouse is not forced to make it work. He or she can't. In Paul's day, it was usually the wife who was abandoned, sadly. And Paul wanted to make sure that this woman who had been left was not ostracized or condemned by the rest of the believers, but rather welcomed and cared for and loved. But Paul says, if the unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage by all means, do everything you can to make it work. Why? Because the gospel is primary. Nonetheless, in this passage, Paul gives a second grounds for divorce. When the unbelieving spouse has abandoned the believer. So that makes two permissible, not commanded, two permissible exceptions to the Bible's teaching against divorce. Adultery by either spouse and abandonment by the unbelieving spouse of the believer. I believe this is the Bible's teaching and our pastoral staff is in harmony on these exceptions. It's neither never divorce nor divorce for many reasons. Unfortunately, we live in a culture, including often within the church, where we quickly reach another conclusion. Namely, many Bible-believing Christians consider divorce wrong except for adultery, abandonment, and my situation. Isn't that true? We endure great pain and loss and disappointment, and so we're desperate to get out. What about the realities that we face, the needs that we have? What about breakdown in a fallen world? Marriage is extremely complicated. You only have to get in one to know it. There are a lot of cultural variations, not just in our time, but throughout history. And, And if you're like me, you wish the Bible would say a whole lot more about marriage as well as divorce and remarriage too. These are really difficult issues. Our desire here is to be true to Scripture, and, and, and yet we live in realities that at times the Bible doesn't address, or at least not directly. And in light of that, I'd like to give some pastoral input on these issues. And, 
as I do, I believe that these are consistent with the scriptures and with what our church leadership holds. But these comments are mine alone. Number one, I believe that when divorce is permissible in the scriptures, that remarriage is permissible as well. If not, then it would tend to make things worse, not better, for the one who's been divorced, especially for a wife any time, but especially in Paul's day. I think this also makes the best sense of what Jesus teaches in the gospel about divorce when he talks about the circumstances of adultery in remarriage. But we must admit, remarriage is not always explicitly taught in the text. Number two, there are always two people who contribute to the imperfections and the dysfunctions in a marriage. Jesus, if he would have been married, would have been the only person who was ever exempt from that. We each often underestimate our capacity to contribute negatively to a marriage. Marriage breakdown, though, is by no means always a 50-50 proposition. There's often one person who bears the lion's share of responsibility, and there's often one person who bears most of the guilt for causing divorce. Number three, abuse. Abuse is a devastating reality. And the Bible doesn't directly address that. I will say that physical and sexual abuse are always wrong and never justified. And that the safety of individuals, especially a wife and children, are paramount. And in such cases, removal from the home situation is often necessary. And, and those individuals should, should take advantage of legal recourse and separation at times to preserve safety. We reject abuse in the strongest terms. Emotional abuse is a little more complicated. It's a real phenomenon, but it's difficult to assess. Its effects can be devastating. But let's also realize that every hardship and every dysfunction in the marriage is not necessarily emotional abuse. Sometimes, here's what it is, two sinners who are seeking to gain leverage and manipulate one another for their own gain. Have you ever done it? If you're married, you have. Number four, the local church is really, really important for marriage and for married couples undergoing difficulty. I so respect people here at Grace who, when things get difficult, who come to us, staff, elders, pastors, trusted friends, and say, we need help because God cares about this marriage, and we will not just let it go. The church should be a refuge, should be a resource for those who are being crushed not just in marital pain, but after the loss of divorce. And we want to be, and we have been, and we desire to be more. For some of you, that's deep in your hearts, whatever your marital history, to help marriages. Thank you for your investment. Finally, number five, what the Bible makes permissible is not the same as expected or commanded. Divorce is always devastating. Divorce is always a great loss at some level. All you have to do is ask someone who's been through it. But when marriages are salvaged, it shows the power of God. And we should not be quick to discount what God could do, even though we could respond in another way. 
Again, I want to say that if you've experienced divorce and you're here this morning, thank you for being here. We ache with you. You are made no less in the image of God. You are no less loved by God because of your divorce. And you and certainly your children have experienced a kind of brokenness that many of us cannot fathom. Wounds go deep. Moving on becomes very, very difficult. I want you to know that we at Grace Polaris Church, we embrace you. And we want you to find in Jesus Christ, we want you to find in this church the kind of connection and affirmation and belonging that befits you as someone made in God's image and a child of God. And if you're remarried here, whether the circumstances were biblically justifiable or not, the Bible's clear about what you should do. You should remain in that marriage. You should seek God's help where you are. And you should do everything to let God work His power now. For all of us, we have a passionate commitment. We want every marriage, not just to survive, but to thrive here at Grace. That includes those who are presently or maybe at some point in the future hanging by a thread. And do you want to know who wants that the most for our marriages? Those who have been through its disillusion, through divorce. I know that because I've talked to many of them, because they know the pain and the loss and the wounds. They know the devastation of divorce. They've lived the battles. They have the scars. And if they've reflected well, they know this is true, that in marriage, only by laying down your weapons can you really find the love you'll need to withstand the battles that lie ahead. When it's no longer about me winning, God can work. Here's the reality. We live as sinners in a fallen world, and we need the supernatural help of God. Divorce is the tragic reality of what becomes for us as humans when we wrestle with sin and brokenness. Whenever marriage fails, we should mourn it as tragic. But, and I love this, there should be no error so grave that it cannot be forgiven, no mistake, Gary Burge writes, beyond the reach of grace. When we see only ashes, God sees possibility. And God can change the hardest heart, the grievous circumstances, the most broken marriage. Do you believe that? God's grace in the gospel can redeem relationships. To be honest, I do not know how people who do not have Christ in their life make it in marriage. I don't. Because marriage is two people and the power of human perseverance and conformity to the expectations around them. One celebrity's wife was asked by a reporter for the secret to staying married. Here's what she said. The main reason is that neither of us have died. That's true. And that's sad. Because the sinful nature in every one of us is so strong and so persistent that left to our own devices, we end up cannibalizing one another, whether we intend to or not. Marriage is hard work. It's almost impossible. And it seems that way to me without the help of the God who made it. But for those of us who are believers in here, the equation is totally different. 
Not because we don't have sinful natures, we do. Not because we can't be selfish, we do, we are. The difference is in the God who has saved us. Because every person who's repented of their sin, turned and trusted Jesus alone for salvation, has the ultimate variable in their life and in their marriage. And that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And that Holy Spirit can make all the difference. He's the one who reminds us of God's design for marriage. He's the one who, who highlights for us that marriage is not a contract, but a covenant. It's permanent. He's the one who demonstrates his power to change us from the inside out and maybe our spouse as well. He's the one who gives us the capacity to forgive because we recognize how much we've been forgiven. See, with the Spirit of God, we don't just see the necessity of forgiveness. We get the capacity to forgive. Remember Peter's question to Jesus, how much should we forgive? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. In other words, stop counting. Forgiveness is a way of life. Becoming a Christian is about getting a new heart. A soft heart filled with the Holy Spirit. And such a heart is capable of change in the direction of Jesus Christ. It's capable of forgiving a brother or sister, even in the most grievous of sins. And here's the kicker. That brother or sister might be your spouse. When two believers are married, that's a capacity that's out of this world, literally. We don't have any more excuses. It's impossible. With God, we know all things are possible. Do you believe that? As a believer, God works change in our lives and in our marriages. And our question no longer becomes a fixation, what am I permitted to do? Rather, our question becomes, what is God capable of doing here? And that changes how we think, and that changes how we see, and that changes how we live. Do you think that's pie in the sky? Friends, God is the master at mending broken marriages and shattered lives. And that's good news for every last one of us.